It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only, call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 93- one three eight one four five six seven or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com we hope you'll take out your bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of god's word on this edition of the virtual bible study and we welcome you to the virtual bible study for thursday february 13th 2014 Thank you for joining us on the program tonight. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, is here. Hello, Dad. Jacob, great to be with you tonight. Anthony's behind the controls. Welcome tonight, Anthony. Hey, Anthony. Hey, thanks. It's good, it's good to be here. Good to be with you. And it's good to have you on the other end of the line tonight. We'll look forward to hearing from you at 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com, and to the bottom of your video window if you're watching us live tonight in the chat room. We hope you'll join in the discussion there. And I've got to ask you, what in the world's going on with the topic tonight? Well, you, you, you picked one of the lousiest articles that's been written in a long time. I know. I woke up this morning, and one of the first things I saw, that check an email, was this story on Yahoo News. Crazy. It's really it's really it's, something. It's not worth the uh, bits uh, it took to write it. The, the, the teaser, when, when I, I suppose everybody has email windows a little different, but mine, when I go to tr- try to look at email, Yahoo tries to throw up some news stories to get me to chase after them, right? Mm-hmm. And so their teaser was, big mistake discovered in the Bible. Oh, wow. All right. So I had to click on that. Uh, and it showed a picture, a sort of a silhouette picture of a camel and a camel driver. And uh, when I clicked on Is that on, what he's called? A camel driver? I guess so. Uh, a camelist? Leader? Camelist? Cam- I don't, I don't no. know. Okay. A cameler? <laughs> but uh, but uh, the, the actual headline or actual title of the article on Yahoo News was Appearance of Camels in Genesis called Appearance of Camels in Genesis called Sign of Authors Distance from History. In other words, they're saying well, let me read it. It's, yeah, really, just read it's, it. it's not too long, it's so not I'll read long. it. Okay. Biblical scholars have long been aware of many of the stories and accounts in the sacred books were not written by eyewitnesses, and according to new research, further evidence of the historical distance has appeared in the form of a humpback camel. New research using radioactive car- uh, radioactive carbon dating techniques shows the animals weren't domesticated until hundreds of years after the events documented in the book of Genesis. The research was published by Ezra bin Joseph and Lidar Safir Hin, archaeologists from Tel Aviv University in Israel. They believe camels were not domesticated in the eastern Mediterranean until the 10th century B.C. Now, point of reference there. The first reference in Genesis to camels is Genesis 12, verse 16. Abraham had camels. All right. Abraham lived about 1900 B.C. Okay. So they're now so, they're saying that camels weren't domesticated until about a thousand. So 900 B. years difference. They're saying, but they they have found some camel remains. Uh huh. Now I don't know how they know that they're domesticated camels versus not domesticated camels, yes. but they're saying. Uh, based upon carbon-14 dating of uh, these camels uh, that they uh, understand to have been domesticated. About 900 years, in other words, the Bible was saying camels were domesticated 900 years before. The evidence that they The evidence they found indicates. They go on. And yet the humpback camel creature, the humpback creatures are mentioned repeatedly alongside Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, indicating that the Bible's writers and editors were portraying what they saw in their present as how things looked in the past, says a New York Times article by John Noble Wilford. Here's the quote. These anachronisms are telling evidence that the Bible was written or edited long after the events it narrates and is not always reliable as verifiable history. These camel stories, quote, do not encapsulate memories from the second millennium, said Noah Mizrahi, an Israeli biblical scholar, but should be viewed as back projections from a much later period. you get what he's saying? Yeah. The guys who wrote the Bible were writing it from what they understood, but they they were writing it many years later. Uh, well, you know, the fact of the matter is the Bible is, is not vague on that point. Moses is the author of the first five books of the right, Old Testament. Right. Jesus credited him with being the writer of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Joseph lived 
I mean, excuse me, Moses lived about 1,500 years B.C. So Moses was uh, on the order of 400 years after oh, Abraham. So that's no revelation. There's no the, revelation that the one who wrote Genesis wasn't there when Genesis happened. Right. That's no revelation at all. The Bible's clear on that fact. But the agenda here is to say that uh, that, that he introduced errors into the into the Scripture. That, that, and so what they're saying is these fellows, like Moses, who wrote the Old Testament, centuries after the events actually occurred weren't writing accurate history they were writing sort of sort of a story and telling it on the basis of what they understood to be normal in their time but now they're saying we understand it was not so in the in the past that they were writing about you get that right 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 so they call these anachronisms in other words they wrote into the story some things that wouldn't have been true back then it was true in their lifetime but it wasn't wouldn't have been true back then right it'd be like you writing a story about washington crossing the potomac and you said he went in a bass boat yeah they had an outboard motor and now yeah they didn't have those but you thought they did so you just i mean we have outboard motors so you just sort of fabricate and so i just sort of said well they george washington slapped a motor on his boat and headed across the potomac right uh, you know, and so that would be the gist of what they're right. arguing here. Um, here's a quote from National Geographic. While there are conflicting theories about when the Bible was composed, the the recent research suggests it was written much later than the events it describes. Well, okay, we no, know that. Yeah, right. That's not that's not a revelation. This supports earlier studies that have challenged the Bible's veracity as a historical document. That's the key right there. Uh-huh. They're saying the Bible's not true and it's not historically accurate. Right. The biblical angle wasn't the focus of recent research, though just an uh, just an afterthought of the observation. Uh, the question over phantom camels is not new, according to Time magazine. Phantom camels. Uh, biblical scholar William Foxwell Albright argued in the mid-1900s that camels were an, an anachronism. In an opinion piece for CNN, Joel Baden writes that there was no deception intended on the part of the Bible authors Biblical authors, Baden writes, simply transplanted the nomadic standards of their time into the distant past. There's nothing deceptive about this. They weren't trying to trick anyone. They imagined quite reasonably that the past was fundamentally like their present. But you get even here's a guy who's saying, no, I didn't think they were trying to be deceptive. But he's even denying right. the truthfulness or the legitimacy right. of the Bible. Right. Uh, a similar conclusion was reached by Smithsonian.com author Colin Schultz, who wrote, Quote, these findings don't necessarily disprove all the stories of the Bible. Rather, knowing that there are camels where there definitely shouldn't be uh, shows that the Bible authors, working thousands of years after the events they were describing were supposed to take place, took a modern lens to these ancient tales. All right. So basically, they have attacked the credibility of the Bible. In particular, they have attacked the historical uh, accuracy of the Bible and so it's a question about inspiration, really. And so that's what we want to investigate in our study tonight. All right. And the devil only has to introduce a little bit of doubt uh, to uh, get us uh, to turn away from God. And he did that starting with Adam and Eve. And uh, that seems to be another uh, approach here, another effort at his on his part. Today. But, you know, what is so frustrating is that these news agencies, man, they will jump on a thing like right. that. And that's just, and actually, it's not, actually, it's not even a new claim. You know, the, the, the big splash across my computer screen this morning, big mistake found in the Bible. Well, then you read this and you realize it's just wild speculation, but it's not even new speculation. I mean, it's been around for 150 years. People have been saying, you know, that's that business about camels and Genesis might be a problem. But they act like they just discovered it. A junk story. A junk story. Anthony, does it convince you? <laughs> not at all. I think that a junk is exactly the term I was going to use. I mean... Um, it's just, you know, these folks put out this research and, you know, there's no discussion or, um, really look no into critical ha- uh, uh, right. analysis here of right. whether or not it makes sense. Exactly. Or how was this research done? Uh, who are these people? Yeah. You know, yeah, the, the story <laughs> on Yahoo News was so vague and brief, it didn't even tell what research they'd done. Where did they discover these camel remnants? Mm-hmm. And, you know, what was the setting where they were discovered uh, and so forth. So it's, it's really a weak story. Uh, but we thought it would serve as a uh, uh, launching off point to a, dis- to, a, to a broader discussion of biblical inspiration. All right. How do you answer, though, the camel claim, the phantom ca- camels? How do you answer that? Here's, here's the questions we sent out to our update list earlier today. 
And again, we always remind you, if you're not on the update list, get on it by sending us an email to questions at collegeview.com. Say, add me to your list, and we'll do it. Number one, what response would you offer to the claims made in the article just referenced? Mm -hmm. In other words, as always, as Bible believers, we feel an obligation, a duty to answer those who would challenge our faith. Right. And so I think we can answer that. I don't think it's even hard. But see, the problem is that's meant to shake up people's faith in the Bible. Right. You know, destroy that foundation. I think we can answer it, but I just am frustrated at the way it's being reported. Number two. What do you mean by inspired, and does the Bible actually claim to be inspired? Number three, concerning proofs of biblical inspiration, please comment on the unity and harmony of the Bible, the flawless accuracy of the Bible in areas such as history, geography, and science, and fulfilled prophecy. All right, so we're going to get into a general discussion about the inspiration of the Bible and can we trust the Bible well, we've got to deal with this uh, story first. We say it's a junk story. What do you think? How do you deal with it? Jim in Kentucky tonight, uh, Tompkinsville, Kentucky, says there was actually a video on the Weather Channel online this past Saturday which dealt with the same subject, although the video said that the Campbells did not appear in the Middle East until 900 years after Christ. Obviously a mistake. They probably can't. Uh, the people who wrote the story probably don't know the difference between Christ and Moses and uh, and uh, they or Abraham, actually. Uh, so they... Uh, Probably didn't know that there was an error there. Uh, and then he says in the Wikipedia, if you go to Wikipedia and look up camels, it says that in, on Wikipedia that uh, camels have existed since 2500 to 3000 BC, which would make the story in this in the scriptures. And I assume valid. that he means they've existed as domesticated animals. They obviously existed oh, right, be, right. Well, yeah. before since, that. But, uh, the world was created. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then he says, uh, go to Wikipedia and search camels. There's an article there that lists the facts that camels are mentioned in other ancient cultures, not just the Bible. So that's the first question we want to get into. I tell you what, let's do, Jacob. Let's take our first break and then let's spend our next segment answering this goofy article that that was uh, publicized earlier today. Right, if you've got some ideas on how we can answer the claims that, well, we found some camel bones. They're ten, they're a thousand years old. Abraham lived nineteen hundred or a thousand years before Christ. Abraham lived nineteen hundred years, so there's a nine hundred year gap. Uh, Moses made up the camel story when he wrote the account. Uh, that we read in Genesis. How do you answer those claims? We'd like to hear your thoughts. Send them in. Just simple one or two line answers. Or if you'd like to give us a call, it's 877-381-4567. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Study continues right after this. Now you can listen to a podcast of a recent sermon every week. Find out more at collegeview.com. There's more of the Virtual Bible Study right after these important messages. Hello, I'm Wade with tonight's Bible Quiz. Who was the father of Moses? Stay tuned, and I'll be right back with the answer. Here's some quotes worth pondering. Preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. I would rather live my life as if there is a God and die to find out that there isn't, than to live as if there isn't and to die to find out that there is. Before becoming annoyed at someone else's faults, count to ten, ten of your own faults. If we could only forget our troubles as easily as we forget our blessings. The man who sells alcohol is a businessman who is ashamed of his best customers. My Lord knows the way through the wilderness. All I have to do is follow. Man, wish I'd said that. This is Wade again. Did you know the answer to tonight's Bible quiz? The question was, who was the father of Moses? The answer is Amram. That's found in Exodus 6. Verse 20. Thanks for listening to tonight's virtual Bible study. And stay tuned for more exciting facts from God's Word. Coming up next. We're waiting to hear from you. Call in right now and join in on the virtual Bible study. Now, back to the program. We're back on the program tonight, and we're talking about this goofy news story that says that the Bible is not to be trusted because we found some camel bones that... Back well, I don't even know if it was camel bones. I mean, it was, the article didn't even describe what they were basing this this carbon oh, dating on. If you went to the New, if you went to the New York Times article that was linked there, it was some camel, camel bones, bones they found in. A How do they know those were domestic mine or something? How, oh, because they were in a mining area, in a yeah. copper mining area. Copper mining is what it was, <laughs> and the they thought the bones were thickened, like they had been carrying a load. Okay. Okay. Some of our emailers have got yeah. some of our emailers have got some really good answers here. Here's okay. one from Mike Mahler, who was on the pro uh, yeah, on hey, the Mike. program with us a couple weeks ago. He said in a recent article in National Geographic, obviously intended to discredit the Bible, the author claims that scientists have discovered that camels were not domesticated until long after Abraham lived. 
They base their evidence upon excavations done near Tel Aviv, or more precisely, in Israel's Arava Valley in the southern part of Israel. They claim that evidence suggests that layers in the archaeological dig suggest that domesticated camels did not exist in Israel until around 930 B.C., long after Abraham lived. Then they use these findings to question the authorship of the Bible, claiming that the ancient writings were not penned by those who, who we currently believe, but by people much later who were writing about the past under the assumption that camels were also domesticated during the lifetime of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They claim these mystery authors who copied and edited the Bible over the centuries were simply ignorant of the fact that the early patriarch could not have had a domesticated camel. But what scientists seem to overlook is that Abraham was not from this southern part of Israel. He came from a well-advanced culture known as Ur in the area of Chaldea, which is in modern-day Iraq, almost as far as the Persian Gulf, Genesis 11, verse 31. Abram was very rich in livestock, Genesis 13, verse 2 says, so he would have known a thing or two about domesticating animals. Before scientists attempt to discredit the Bible on the basis of archaeological findings from southern Israel, they might want to begin by considering if any evidence exists for that suggests camels had been domesticated in countries much further to the east to see if Abraham might have brought these domesticated camels to the land of Canaan with him or have learned the practice from peoples during his travels. In fact, this makes me wonder if Abraham or one of his descendants might have been instrumental in introducing domesticated camels to the region, much like the conquistadors introduced horses to North America. I think that's a great answer, Mike. And, yeah. and, in other words, because they, because they found domesticated animals in a mining area in southern Israel that dated to 930, what kind of logic says, therefore, there were n- no domesticated camels anywhere else before that time? Right. right. That's just illogical. Right. Anthony, if I were to go to your yard, I would find a, uh, I believe it would be a 2005 automobile. And, uh, and so it'd be oh, the, so they, the same. Uh, well, it appears that they invented automobiles in 2005 because I was in Colombia in a certain area and I found a 2005 vehicle, so there must not be any before that. There must never have been any before that. That'd be the same logic. That'd be exactly the same logic. Anthony? Yeah, I agree. I just think anytime we see stories like this, we just we just have to question it. And you know, when you're trying to date, I mean, how can you you can't date something like that reliably? But that but yet it's presented as absolute fact. There's a lot and, of assumptions I mean, here. Exactly. All right. Uh, uh, along that same line, Ed in Paris, Tennessee, has a good answer. He said the introduction of uh, camels as beasts of burdens in a specific copper mining region does not mean that there was not a prior use of domesticated camels for trade in other areas of Palestine. That is an exponential extrapolation beyond the evidence at hand. It simply reveals that they were introduced there, not whether they had been used in other areas or at other times in other numbers or for other purposes. Supply-side economics would suggest that they were brought to the Arava Valley at a time of the Great Bronze Age demand for copper, mm, but wow. that says nothing about other historic uses. Wow. No, no it's, and, and Ed's making the same good point. Look how these prejudiced reporters are so quick to jump on something that they think serves as a, as a justification to criticize the Bible, and it doesn't even make sense – Right. And, but, and, they, and they, you know, they, they, but they reported as fact. Somebody makes a claim that says, that casts some doubt on the scriptures, and they'll just they they take it as fact without even uh, examining it or yeah. considering it for themselves. They're just writing this and don't care that uh, whether it's accurate or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah go, and you go take ahead. it even a step further. I mean, you kind of like you know, with this twenty four hour media cycle, as we call it, they've got to come up. They've got to come up with something sensational to get people to go to their website to see the ads that. You know that they're right. generating the revenue for. So it, even if you take it a step further, it's all about just you know trying to make a splash with something. And they don't care whether there's any legitimacy to okay, it. Right. Uh, Ed goes on. He says, "Careful study of the counts of camels in the Book of Genesis reveals that they are first mentioned in the possession of Pharaoh, not Abraham. Abraham in Genesis twelve sixteen. Pharaoh meaning that it would be uh, in Egypt. In Egypt. Okay. So not even in Israel. Okay." So there's evidence of domesticated camels in Egypt at this time, and he gives a reference here. The notion of Abraham departing Ur in a camel caravan may be premature. Okay. Uh, however, some decades later, 60 or 70 years after the death of Sarah, we find camels in Abraham's possession, Genesis 24:10, as he dispatches his servants to Mesopotamia in search for a bride for Isaac. It is inconceivable that after traveling the region and being blessed with much prosperity, that Abraham would not have taken advantage of the camel, even if it was a recent domestication. 
Great numbers of camels are not mentioned until the time of Gideon, Genesis 6-5, but that does not prevent the possibility of other smaller herds at an earlier date. By way of illustration, I have been to villages in South Africa that were inundated with cell phones at the beginning of the 21st century. Segregationist policies limited the development of telephones in many of the rural areas, and with the collapse of apartheid, cell phone manufacturers flooded the huge market with their products. It would be ignorant and absurd to conclude that there were no cell phones or telephones in any part of South Africa prior to the millennium, just because we find huge number of them after the millennium. Furthermore, suppose that scholars were brash enough to claim that any literary reference to cell phones prior to 2000 A.D. were an anachronistic evidence of writer's ignorance. Would not that show that the true ignorance is on the part of the scholars who cannot fathom any explanation contrary to their own? I think that's exactly right. Well said. Thank you, Ed. Ed, uh, I think Ed gets the the award tonight for uh, a very thorough answer. Thank you, Ed, for that. And uh, Chris in the U.K. has sent in one an article from a gentleman Kenneth. named Kenneth Kitchen. Camels were last and least of Abraham's possessions in Genesis chapter 12, verse 16, and in his time were used solely for long-distance desert-edge trip uh, to Haran and back by his servant to obtain Isaac's bride, Genesis 22, 10 through 64. Genesis 24, 10 through 64. They were among the last named in Jacob's wealth in Genesis 30, 43, 32, verse 7, and 32, verse 15. And again, were used solely for the long trip from Haran and back to Canaan in Exodus 31, 17, and 34. The desert-traveling Midianites used them, and in Genesis chapter 37, verse 25, this is re- uh, remarkably little. Then at the time of the Exodus and after, 13th century at the latest, they occur once among Pharaoh's transport animals in Exodus 9, verse 3, and twice in the list of creatures not to be eaten in Leviticus 11, verse 4, and Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 7. Not much of a presence at all. What about external sources between about 2000 and 1200 B.C.? We first consider the early second millennium, vaguely patriarchal, for which we have the following from Egypt, a camel skull from the uh, Fayum Pottery A uh, stage of occupation within about uh, 2000 to 1400 BC. Okay, so there, there's, there is an archaeological dis- discovery that would date to 2000, and it has which a fig- is the time of Abraham. It has a figurine of, it's a figurine of a kneeling camel. Uh, the hump and load is now missing. Uh, it was originally fixed by no, a which, tenant. Okay, so th- this was a... Uh, uh, Figurine, yeah, and it actually showed a kneeling camel originally with a load on its back. Sounds domesticated. Sounds domesticated. All right, and it goes on. There's a uh, camel jaw from the Middle Bronze Tomb at uh, Tel Afara North, uh, about from about 1900 to 1555 BC, from North Syria. A cylinder seal of the 18th century of deities on a camel in the uh, Walters Art Gallery. Again, back to 1900 B.C., time of Abraham. So we see that uh, that there is um, uh, evidence of of camels being domesticated from the time that Abraham would have and, lived. And maybe even before. Okay. Um, so I think, those, I, think, I, I, mean, I think our emailers have nailed that response. The problem is a lot of impressionable young kids and others will see that story on Yahoo News today and and they'll say, oh, well, I guess we can't trust the Bible after all. Yeah. You know, and the fact of the matter is... Because they're just gullible, uh, looking here on their way to check Facebook and, oh, well, okay. Yeah, I think that's a shame. I I thought one other thing might be factored in here. What they've done is they found some camel bones and they submitted them to carbon-14 dating and, and... as if carbon-14 dating is dead-on accurate and right. that it's so precise that they can prove that the camels didn't exist as domesticated animals until hundreds of years after uh, Abraham lived. Uh, this is from Scientific American, no mean journal, uh, and it says carbon dating is used to work out the age of organic material and affect any living thing. The technique hinges on carbon-14 a radioactive isotope of the element that, unlike other more stable forms of carbon, decays away at a steady rate. Organisms capture a certain amount of carbon-14 from the atmosphere when they are alive. By measuring the ratio of the radioisotope to the non-radioactive carbon, the amount of carbon-14 decay can be worked out, thereby giving an age for the specimen in question. But that assumes that the amount of carbon-14 in the atmosphere was constant. Any variation would speed up or slow down the clock. Uh, Christopher Bronk Ramsey, a geochronologist at the University of Oxford in the United Kingdom, 
who led the latest work published today in Science, says various geological, atmospheric, and solar processes can influence atmospheric carbon-14 levels. As a rule, get this, as a rule, carbon dates are younger than calendar dates. Wow. A bone carbon dated to 10,000 years is around 11,000 years old, and a 2,000-year-old carbon year roughly equates to 20,000 carbon years roughly equates to 24,000 calendar years. Mm. That's from a scientist who says we've got these inaccuracies in carbon dating. And it's, and it's, and so the margin of error in what was reported in that Yahoo news story is not even mentioned, but Scientific American suggests you can't be that precise. All right. Well, and uh, Chris in the UK says uh, this may fall in the same problem of last week as to carbon dating and the uniformitarianism issue. Uh, and so Chris is on that line as well. These days are very, very questionable, Anthony. Uh, yeah. We can't stake anything on uh, carbon dating, it seems. I wouldn't. And, you know, I've heard of and uh, seen other examples of rocks that are, you know, newly formed or volcanic rocks that are dated to be, you know, hundreds of thousands of years old, but they were just formed, you know, a few days earlier. Or, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, every time I think of this subject, I, I don't have the specifics, but I just remember in, when I was in biology class in, in college, the teacher was talking about carbon dating and, I don't remember what the question is was that I asked her, but she said something, and I just asked a very basic question about something that didn't make sense, and she was just like, well, I just don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And that always stuck with me. Obviously, not everybody, every professor knows everything, but it just stuck with me. It's like she couldn't explain it, and um, it just, I don't know. Yeah. All right. right, Let's, uh, uh, we're going to take a break here, but how about a little levity? Uh, Jim in, in Kentucky says, this may ruin my joke about when smoking cigarettes is first mentioned in the Bible. Genesis 24:16, where it speaks of Rebecca lighting off her camel. Yeah, well. Oh, man, Jim. Man. That's, bad. That's almost as bad as that Yahoo News story. It is, Jim. All right. All right. Thanks, All right. Jim. Okay. Well, let's take a break. We'll get this week's bullet point. Get your thoughts on the other side. Now to the discussion. About inspiration. Yeah, we're going to talk about inspiration. We, we, we needed that. We needed that jumping off point. We got it. So let's okay, talk about the off. Bible proofs of inspiration. We'll talk about that on the other side of the break. We want to hear your thoughts. Uh, can the Bible be trusted? Is it inspired? And is it inspired uh, in such a way that it is 100% reliable? Or are there problems? Are there errors in it? Let us know your thoughts. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Study continues right after this. Did you hear what they just said? Call in during this break and let everyone know what you think. The virtual Bible study continues after this announcement. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. Facebook is, of course, the world's most popular social networking website. One of the features of Facebook is the ability to like something that has been posted there by another user. Typically, to like something means that you find it funny or agree with what is being said. It's a way of indicating that you appreciate it in some way, that you're a fan of it, that you just like it. Unfortunately, there are frequent examples of Christians liking things that should actually repulse them. For example, someone posts an inappropriate picture of themselves in immodest clothing, yet several Facebook friends will indicate that they like this. Another discusses some recent immoral behavior, effectively boasting about the sinful thing that has been done, and his Facebook buddies nod their approval with a thoughtless like. Often people will reference some risque movie, an ungodly television show, or a worldly concert or performance. They suggest that they really enjoyed it and recommend it to others, and many are quick to like this also. In all of these things and more, we need to be reminded that God's Word says we should, quote, not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. And it warns us that it is, quote, disgraceful to even speak of the things which are done by them. Ephesians 5, verses 11 and 12. Surely this is the polar opposite of liking such things. And one more thing to consider. Increasingly, we are hearing of certain brethren who are posting questionable and erroneous doctrinal statements on their Facebook pages. Or they may link to some article or comments by a religious false teacher. They endorse this and their friends like it as well. But the scriptures teach us that we should, quote, not bid him Godspeed, for he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. Second John verses 10 and 11. Be careful about your influence and example before you click like on Facebook. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. My name is Roger Toombs, and me and my wife love to listen to the virtual Bible study on Thursday nights. 
Share your comment with the world. Call in now and be a part of the virtual Bible study. Now, back to the program. We're back on the program tonight. We want to remind you this program is brought to you by the College U Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Find out more about us by visiting our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com, where you can find out more information about this program, find archives of the last almost nine years of the virtual Bible study, and you can also find information on how you can podcast this program, podcast recent sermons that have been presented to the College U Church of Christ, and find out more information about where we meet and when we meet, check out our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com. If you have any questions or comments, we look forward to hearing from you. Questions at collegeview.com is the email address to use. We're talking about the news story of that uh, says that camels prove the Bible. Well, that it's not inspired, it's not reliable. We want to ask the question, is it reliable? Is it inspired tonight? And guess 536 agrees, likes uh, Jim's joke. Yeah, well, good. I mean, uh, good. We need a little levity on the virtual yeah, Bible study. Right. Well, okay. Uh, jocularity. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, so let's go to this. Let's talk about the broader question of inspiration. I think we've dealt with the camel thing uh, very well. Okay. Uh, so let's talk about inspiration. First of all, I think it's, whenever we're talking about inspiration, it's important to know what do we mean by inspired. Um, there's several different views of inspiration, but they're not all accurate. Uh, for instance, there's a view that says the Bible is just partially inspired. Some parts of it inspired and other mm-hmm. parts aren't. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, maybe, for instance, the moral teachings are inspired. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's an inspired statement. Yeah. But other statements aren't. Sort of filler. Just sort of filler. Yeah. Uh, maybe, for instance, the historical sections are not inspired. That's what this that we've been dealing with tonight suggested you can't really trust the history mm-hmm. of the Bible. Mm-hmm. The problem with that, of course, is that it effectively makes the Bible useless. Because yeah. how can we dis- dis- decipher which parts are inspired and which parts aren't? That'd be the, you could throw out anything you wanted to. At that yeah, that would be very faulty. If, so if it said uh, that I shouldn't uh, lie, well, that part wasn't inspired because I didn't like that part. Yeah. Uh, another, the part about uh, divorce and remarriage, that part, that was, that was, that was a historical misnomer there yeah yeah, yeah. okay uh, another view is that the bible is inspired is n- inspired in a sort of natural inspiration in other words this would be the idea i saw a beautiful sunset and it, and i sat down and painted a picture of it uh-huh. i was inspired to paint a picture right uh but of course that just that that just reduces the bible to the status of any literary work, you know, in which the author felt something was moved and wrote. Yeah. That's certainly no, no idea no. of divine inspiration. There, There is a view that the Bible was mechanically dictated, you know, that God dictated and the authors of the Bible, like Moses, like Peter and John in the New Testament, mm-hmm. they were nothing more than stenographers. Mm-hmm. They just wrote down exactly what they were told to write. The problem with that, of course, is that we we see different writing styles evidenced by the authors. For instance, you can tell the difference between Paul uh, and John, or right. Paul and Luke. Yes. Uh, and so, how if it was just dictation? If they were just writing down dictated words, how do we that that has a little bit of a problem? Then there's a then idea of inspiration that the. God just inspired the thoughts and left it up to men to put the thoughts into words. In other words, He gave it. He gave the Apostle John the assignment, I want you to write about love. Yeah. Right. And he left it up to John to put the concept of love into his own words. But then, of course, you can discount any particular phrase or expression in those writings because you can say, well, love is inspired, but what John said about it is not exactly inspired. Again, it makes the Bible not very useful as a as a guide for our lives. All right. So, so – You've listed some claims that are there that some make, and those those are pro- fairly widely accepted. Those aren't they, they sound wild, but a lot of people have a similar view. Yeah, uh, here, but here's what the Bible really claims. Okay, the Bible claims to be verbally plena- a verbal plenary inspiration from God. Verbal means well, ev- every word is there because God willed it to be there. Yeah, plenary means full. All parts are equally inspired. Okay. In other words, it's ver- uh, a verbal, plenary inspiration of God. Every word is there because God wanted it to be there, and that's true of the whole document. Okay? Uh, right. Prove he- it. Well, let, let, let me give you a um, uh, – here's a, a quote from Homer Haley, and I think he kind of puts it in, in, in a good way. Verbal inspiration of the Scriptures is what I believe. I mean by this that when prophets of the Old Covenant or apostles of the New spoke or wrote that they spoke and wrote by inspiration – 
God giving them the idea and selecting and choosing from their vocabulary the words that they were to use in making the idea known. I simply affirm that the original message and the original manuscripts were spoken and written by men as they were guided by the Holy Spirit, both in thought and words in which the thoughts were made known. I believe the Bible sustains this proposition. Uh, uh, here's another from a, from a Keith Ward. Uh, he says, what is inspiration often is described as God breathed, which means that God breathed the words into the mouths of the men who spoke. But this does not answer how. The Holy Spirit sometimes dictated words, uh, sometimes dictated word for word what the prophet was to write. Moses was commanded, write these words, mm-hmm. Exodus 34, verse 37. On this occasion, he was merely a secretary who took dictation from God. Much scripture does not seem to be dictated. The authors are permitted to use their own style and background. Their vocabularies and grammatical ability are very widely in such cases, the role of inspiration is to guarantee that the words or illustrations the author chooses exactly express the will and word of God. The author is given some freedom in his writing, but not the freedom to error. Yes. I think that's a pretty good way of putting it. I think so, too. Uh, and there's just a lot of Bible verses that support that notion of inspiration. Chris in the U.K. has the same understanding. He says that God moved through the writers to communicate to us the words which God wanted us to hear. It is not, as it were, a dictation but a movement of God's spirit utilizing the personality and style of the writer. All right. Thank you, Chris. Um, And Randy in Swartz Creek, Michigan, says, I I got this from a hermeneutics lesson, and that's almost as big a word as the plenary word that you just broke off on us, but he got this from a hermeneutics lesson. I think it's really on the mark. Inspiration may be defined as divine influence directly exerted on the mind of man. The term plenary that you used means full, complete, entire. The term verbal means uh, to words rather than ideas. Thus, when one speaks of the inspiration of the Bible, one should speak of plenary verbal inspiration. God gave them to men the actual words he wished to be recorded through the Holy Spirit. The literal meaning of inspiration is God-breathed. Very good. I, I agree you, with Randy. that. The, the Bible actually claims what we've just defined. All right. Let's look at a couple of Old Testament verses. Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 and 19. Moses was prophesying, and he was prophesying what the Lord said. The Lord said, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Notice, I'll put my words in his mouth. It wasn't, he's going to speak. It wasn't. Okay. It wasn't. I will put my thoughts in his brain, and then he'll try to vocalize them best as he right. can. Right. No, he said, I'll put my words in his mouth. Ooh, wow. uh, look at 2 Samuel 23, verse 2. 2 Samuel 23, verse uh, 2. In 2 Samuel 23, verse 2, it says, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. Uh-huh. His word was in my tongue. Yes, it was. So lots of references like that in the Old Testament. And for sake of time, we're going to move a little quicker on that. Yeah. Uh, I want to show you how Jesus viewed the inspiration of the scriptures. Yes. In Matthew chapter 22, uh, the Sadducees came to Jesus and they challenged him about this woman. She was married to a man. He died. His brother married the widow to raise up seed to his name. It so happened that they uh, that brother died, another died. Seven brothers had this woman to wife. None of them had children by her. And then she died. And they said, who's shall she be in the resurrection, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Jesus answered, uh, um, ye do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but the living. Jesus quoted what God said to Moses mm-hmm. at the burning bush mm-hmm. in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. At the burning bush, God said to Abraham, "Right, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yeah. Well, that's present tense. But Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for centuries. Yes. And so the question is, what, what, what we're seeing there is that Jesus made an argument based upon the tense of a verb. Yes. In other words, based upon the the verb tense of the statement God made to Abraham, Jesus was proving there is life beyond the grave. That Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still existed, though physically dead, they still existed. And God could say, not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. On a verb tense. And and so Jesus thought that the Old Testament was so thoroughly and completely inspired that he could hinge his whole argument upon a verb tense that he used there. But it gets better than that. Go ahead. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, Jesus said, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Not only did he believe the tenses of the verbs were inspired, he believed even the smallest letter and you know, little we, pronun- we, uh, pr- uh, whatever that pronunciation marker. I tried to. I tried. I took Hebrew one time yeah. for two weeks before I dropped the class. Yeah. I dropped the class after two weeks, uh, Anthony, because I couldn't master the alphabet. <laughs> and, and have you ever seen Hebrew writing? It, I mean, the alphabet is incredible. And, of course, they write from left to right instead of from le- left to right like we do. They write from right to left. And a, a letter is distinguished from another letter by just the slightest little pin stroke. You know, right. really hard to learn. Hebrew is a really tough language. I admire anybody who masters it. But... When Jesus said not one jot or tittle will pass from the law, he was basically saying, we would say, he was acknowledging that even the crossing of the T and the dotting of the I was there because God wanted it to be there. All right. And it's interesting, just as a side note, that uh, the, they say that, that saying that statement in Greek, Anthony, is the same way you'd say it today. The Greek word for jot is iota. Oh. So it's the same thing there you'd you say go. today. Yeah. Not, not one, one iota, iota is going to pass from the law. Okay, we got to go quick, Jacob. We went on to ask then, uh, does the Bible actually claim to be inspired? And and I gave some verses that suggest that it does. Uh, Chris in the UK offers 2 Timothy 3.16, which has been mentioned, all scriptures breathed out by God. 2 Peter 1.20 and 21, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so he, he gives those verses and some others. Uh, Randy and Swartz Creek also mentioned Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. Yeah, it references Second Peter chapter three verses fifteen and sixteen. Uh, Chris does, and that that shows us that uh, Scripture was recognized as Scripture in the first century when it was written. Yeah. Uh, that uh, they, they they didn't need some kind of counsel to determine that. They knew what was Scripture when it was given to them. All right, let's take our last break, Jacob. And when we get back, we've got to fly through some of the – we'll quickly reference some of the proofs. In other words, the Bible can claim anything. What's the proof that it is what it claims to be? All right, we'll take a break. Get your thoughts on the other side. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study will continue right after this. You won't want to miss what we talk about next. The discussion continues right after these important messages. Hello, everyone. I'm Monty, a member of the College View Church of Christ. So if you've been hearing all about the College View Church of Christ on the virtual Bible study and are interested in finding out more about the church, but you live hundreds of miles away from Columbia, Tennessee, and can't come and visit with the congregation to find out more, there's no reason to fear. After all, we live in the 21st century. Here's what you can do to find out more about the College View Church of Christ. First, why don't you check out our website while you're listening to the virtual Bible study? You'll find important information about the church there, including bulletin articles there on various subjects and can even listen to sermons that have been presented at the College View Church in the past. Secondly, if you have questions about the church or about any Bible teaching, why don't you send an email to us and let us know how we can help. Send your questions to questions at collegeview.com. That address, once again, is questions at collegeview.com. We can even have a personal Bible study with you over email if you desire. And finally, if you would rather talk with someone in person, give us a call at 931-381-4567. That's 931-381-4567. You can call this number anytime. If you don't get an answer, leave a message and we'll call you back as soon as we can. We're glad you're listening to the virtual Bible study and hope to hear from you soon. We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. Over 41 million subscribers have visited online dating services like eHarmony, which has 15 million members, Match.com, which has 21 million members, Christian Mingle, Our Time, and others. Reliable sources estimate that the online dating industry brings in over $1 billion in revenue each year in the United States alone. The average client spends over $200 per year to find the, quote, right person. Global research company Opinion Matters conducted surveys which show that over half of United States online daters lie on their profiles. That information is via Statistic Brain. The Word of God says in Matthew 19, beginning verse 4, 
Jesus answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Use your internet connection for something good. Listen to the virtual Bible study every week. Now, back to the program. And we're back on the program tonight. Anthony's monitoring the chat room. And, well, Anthony, there's not much to monitor. Yeah, I just kind of... real quiet tonight. Kind of went dead tonight. Uh, I think Jim told that goofy joke, and it kind of turned everybody off. Uh, That's okay. (laughs) The the remedy to that joke is to send some messages in, and and that joke will go off the screen. Yeah. Yeah. Make it scroll. All right. Got to go to the phone, and Arthur is on the phone from Kalioka. Arthur, welcome to the program. Uh, Thank you. In reference to what you were talking about a little earlier, you know, and thinking in terms of uh, uh, the apostle just being given a job to write and just kind of a, oh, I don't know, a story to tell and then they just wrote as they chose. You know, 2 Corinthians uh, 2 and verse 12 and 13, he told the Corinthians, says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things which are freely given us of God, which things also we speak, not the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. It was words given by the Holy Ghost. It didn't say fair, I mean, thoughts, ideas. It was words which man's, not wisdom of man, but that which the Holy Ghost, the words which the Holy Ghost. They were exactly right, Arthur. In other words, he didn't say I gave him the idea. Right. He said I gave him the words. Right. And, and you know, uh, another case might go along with that. Back in um, Matthew 10, verse 19, when he was talking to the twelve, in verse 5, he says there, but says when you are delivered up, take no thought of what you shall speak or what you be given to you. It shall be given to you in that same hour what you shall speak. So it wasn't what they wanted to speak, what they thought. It was given them. Who? Who gave it to them? Didn't John fourteen sixteen both talk about the comforter that he would send to them, guide them into all truth? Right. Just truth with what he that uh, they were to speak. And right. it wasn't their thinking. It was what was told them in that hour. Exactly right. Good points, Arthur. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Oh, yeah, thank you. All right. Appreciate you calling, so, Arthur. All right. I don't know about that uh, uh, camel, what you yeah. call a, a driver or what. What uh, is he? What is he, Arthur? <laughs> I always <laughs> just thought he was uh, like a man riding a horse. Yeah. <laughs> a rider. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Rider. Got yeah. it. All right. Good deal. <laughs> All right, and I understand, Arthur, that the two humped camels ride a little bit better than the one humped camels. So if you're going to, so if you're going to get one, Arthur, get the two humper. Yeah. All right, good. Okay, okay. We're ride between them. All, yeah, right. Right. All right. All right, thank you for calling. Uh, 877-381-4567. The line's open. We'd like to hear from you. we got to go real quick uh, because I think some people will be interested maybe by, by uh, in uh, to reference the – the archive of this. Let's give some some of these proofs, Jacob. And I don't know if we'll have time to pick up some of these email comments or others. But let's talk real quickly about the unity and harmony of the Bible mm-hmm. as a proof of its inspiration. Mm-hmm. The Bible was written by about forty human writers mm-hmm. who were moved by inspiration, as we have defined it. Right now, what would be the proof that they were really inspired? Well. You take those 40 different writers. They wrote over a period of about 1,500 years. As we said, Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. Moses lived about 1,500 years before Christ. Mm -hmm. Of course, the New Testament documents were written in the first century A.D. So over a period of about 1,600 years there, the Bible was written. So what that means is that the Bible writers didn't even all know each other. They didn't even live. They lived centuries apart. They spoke different languages. They came from different educational, social, economic backgrounds. Uh, for instance, uh, Daniel was a statesman. Uh, uh, David was a king. Um, uh, Amos, we've been studying Amos in our Bible class on Wednesday Correct. night, a simple herdsman. Right. A large variety of backgrounds that these men came from. And yet when you put their writings together and compile them and compare them, there's a perfect harmony there, no contradiction. Unbelievable. Now, the question is, how could that possibly happen? Right. And the answer is, it couldn't have happened unless God was guiding the process. And so that's the argument we make about the unity and harmony of the scriptures being a proof of inspiration. I mean, just try to accomplish that. 
uh, with 40 people. And, and remember that the 40 people didn't have the opportunity to sit around a big conference table somewhere and, and compare notes and say, well, I'll write this about this if you write that about that. And Nor did they necessarily have a chance to see what the other person had written before they wrote. Exactly. And when you put it together, there's no contradiction. So that's the that's the argument we make, uh, the proof of the harmony and the unity of the Bible. The, the unity, uh, certainly no contradictions, but the harmony, the, 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 the theme that runs throughout, that is woven throughout the Scriptures. Yeah, the, uh, the constant theme that we see is uh, is has to be. Randy proof. mentions that. All there. right, yeah. The main theme of the Bible, he says, is the redemption of fallen man. Jehovah God has shown His love for mankind through through the entire Bible. The Bible was written over a period of fifteen hundred years. About forty men with uh, were, were used by the Holy Spirit in writing the Scriptures. We read about the flood of God and saving Noah and his family. Then we have Abraham and the, the, and the promise God made to him that all nations or, uh, of mankind will be blessed by his seed. Then we have Moses and the giving of the law, a promise of a prophet like Moses, and that prophet was Jesus our Lord. The law was to bring or prepare the Jews for the come of the anointed of, or, of, or Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, the main theme of the Bible is redemption of mankind and God's love for mankind. And we see that theme from the beginning to the end. We see there. the theme, and and and. That 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 type anti type relationship. Uh, well, some refer to consider it a fulfilled prophecy, but regardless of what you think of it, this, yeah. the type anti type where we see the foreshadowing uh, throughout the scriptures, and then the, the fulfillment of that foreshadowing in the New Testament is proof that there there it must be inspired. The accuracy, another proof of uh, inspiration, the accuracy of the Bible in the realm of history. Now, remember that the Bible is not a general history book. But in regards to the history that it does deal with, which was a rather specific history of the descendants of Abraham, uh, it is accurate. Wherever historical documents are compared to the Bible accounts, there's remarkable harmony. Like we could give some examples. Uh, for instance, it was argued for a long time that Moses could not have written the first five books of the Old Testament because skeptics said, Men didn't even know how to write in the day of Moses. And so they thought they had a contradiction or an error, a historical error in the Bible. This camel story that we talked about, people have claimed historical errors in the Bible, and they have all been answered. Uh, Here's what archaeologists have said concerning the Bible. Uh, A a famous archaeologist named Nelson Gluck said, It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a Bible reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. Uh, 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 let's see, uh, Albright, I think we quoted him about the camels earlier. Uh, here's what he said in uh, Return to Biblical Theology. He wrote, archaeology had set the Bible, the whole Bible, once again at the center of history. Thanks to modern research, we now recognize its substantial historicity. The narratives of the patriarchs, the judges, the monarchy, exile, and restoration have all been confirmed and illustrated to the extent that I have sh- should have thought impossible just 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. So uh, the Bible is historically accurate. And th- that's really what started our discussion tonight, you know, Jacob. They said about the camels, the claim camels weren't domesticated in the time of Abraham. Well, we've proven that that was just a false argument anyway. But the Bible is historically accurate. It's accurate in geography. Um yeah, J.W., uh, let me get this real quick. Okay. J.W. McGarvey said about the uh, histo- uh, geographical accuracy of the Bible. There's general agreement. This is from his book, Lands of the Bible. There's a general agreement between the Bible and the geography of Palestine, and this is well-known fact. Its plains, mountains, valleys, rivers, lakes, cities, and deserts are in all parts of the Bible correctly named and correctly located. The political divisions known to exist are invariably recognized, as are also the changes of government through which the country passed in the course of its long and varied history. In not a single note instance from the beginning to the end of the book is there a failure in any one of these particulars. All right. So it's geographically accurate. Arthur's back on the line tonight. Arthur, welcome back to the program. Uh, thank you. I just thought of another passage in talking about that to uh, more so verify the fact that uh, the apostles or the writers, not a Prophets and apostles, the writer of the uh, Bible, and um, uh, first, second Peter, excuse me, second Peter one, uh, twenty and twenty one. He said, "Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private inter- interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but ho- but the holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost." That's right. Okay. Exactly right. That's about as plain as it can be, isn't it? Sure Absolutely. is. Exactly right. 
Thank you. Thank you, Arthur. All right, and uh, in uh, from the UK tonight, uh, Chris sends in. He says uh, Flavius Josephus mentions in his Antiquities John the Baptist, James the brother of Jesus, and Ananias the high priest, Tacitus or Tacitus mentioned in his Annals, uh, Christus or Jesus. Um, Talus in AD 52 mentioned the eclipse of the sun alongside an earthquake, along with Christ appearing in the writings of Pliny the Younger and Lucian, and uh, Yeshu appearing in the Talmud, who was hung on the eve of Passover. So you're talking about historical references. Historical references that uh, that do are known to be accurate with okay. uh, this. Uh, and and uh, real quick, Jacob, we're going to run out of time. In fact, we are just effectively out of time. Oh. I, I want to go to science, ac- accuracy, science. scientific accuracy of the Bible. And I would like to make this argument, and, and some listening may disagree with me. I, I don't. I don't really like to make the argument that the Bible specified scientific truths in detail centuries before they were discovered. Uh, I think maybe sometimes people overstate their case yeah. on the scientific foreknowledge of the Bible. I th- when it comes to science, I think the thing that's remarkable about the Bible is the things that are not in there. Right. Because we know that the that men have been very superstitious and had. Uh, held lots of faulty views. For instance, f- until just recent centuries, men believed that the earth was the center of the universe. Right. Well, if men had written the Bible on their own, they would have included such foolishness in the writing of the Bible. That's not in the Bible. Right. You know, or, or a flat earth. That's not in the Bible. Um, so, you know, what's amazing is that the Bible did not include those things, and it would have... If the Bible was written by men, not guided by God. All right. Excellent point. So uh, scientific foreknowledge of the Bible, you can give some examples. And people, there are. There people, are some. And people can quibble about the examples that you give. But I think the really amazing thing is what's not there in the Bible. Yeah. The, the the superstitions and the and the faulty understandings of men in the time in which the Bible was written. Those things are not included in the Bible. All right. Well, um, here's some from Chris. And, I, you know, some of these... Some of these may be strange. Some of them aren't. He mentions the hydrological cycle in Job and Ecclesiastes. I think that's a good one. Yeah, spherical nature of the earth in Isaiah. The existence of valleys and seas in Second Samuel, valleys in the seas in Second Samuel, or springs and fountains in Genesis, or its water paths in Psalms, or the concept of entropy in the Psalms, let alone the book of Levit- Leviticus mentioning the need for sanitation to maintain good health or avoid sickness. Uh, so, yes, uh, interesting uh, thoughts there. Uh, and uh, Randy in Schwartz Creek, Michigan, mentions uh, similar ones. The earth uh, spoken of on hanging of hanging on nothing, uh, as we're told, uh, life is in the blood, and that is true. So appreciate that. We got one more prophecy. Well, we got one more area of proof we wanted to mention. We're just out of time, but fulfilled prophecy. There are literally hundreds of examples, thousands of examples, I suppose, of fulfilled prophecy in the Bible concerning Jesus Christ Himself. The Old Testament contains approximately three hundred prophecies about. Jesus that were fulfilled in exact detail uh, when Jesus came and lived on earth. Uh, we could go into detail about those. There are others. I think there are some really amazing ones, and we might want to do a program on that, Jacob, sometime in the future. Yeah. Examples of fulfilled prophecy in the Bible. It's just pretty amazing and quite faith-building to study those prophecies and see how specific they were and how accurately they were fulfilled. And Chris has responded with, uh, well, he takes an opportunity to rib us about our national debt. And, uh, well, Chris, it's none of your business. Uh, no, he says, uh, just kidding. Because he's in the U.K. That's right. Uh, he says uh, Jesus fulfilled 456 prophecies. The chance of eight prophecies occurring was calculated as one, with one in ten with 17 zeros. Yeah, that's, that's the prophecy. The, the, that, the that. chance that someone could just by chance fulfill eight of the prophecies about Jesus. It is ten oh. with, one in ten with the 17 zeros, he says, which is akin to the chance of signing a silver dollar and throwing it into a pile of silver dollars 6,000 times greater than your national debt, which yeah. would cover the state of Texas two feet deep and mixing them all and then yeah. just pulling out the signed one. That's the chance of Jesus fulfilling That, that illustration comes from a book called Science Speaks by a fellow by the name of Peter Stoner. Uh, and it, it's a really neat illustration of just how, how impossible it would have been for anyone to make the specific prophecies about Jesus and for them to be fulfilled as they were. But All there right. are a lot of others, really amazing prophecies of the Old Testament that are worth noting. Uh, we just don't have time tonight. All right. Well, good Proud discussion. Yes. All right. Um, well, it's a crazy story. 
and we waste well we didn't waste time but it's a shame that we even gave it any attention it was such I think you have to, but, journalism but, but the thing of it is that Yahoo story that we started out with it's very disappointing that people will see that and they won't investigate they'll just see the headline big mistake found in the bible and they won't even read the article to see what's under discussion they certainly won't investigate to find out the truth and they'll be left with the the false impression that the Bible can't be relied upon. Yep, and uh, that's a shame. But it can be relied upon, and we must rely on it because we're going to have to give an answer to how we responded to it. And so we appreciate you studying it with us tonight, and we hope that you benefited from our discussion. Anthony, thank you for being here tonight. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Dad, thank you for your time. Thanks, Jacob. We hope you'll make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And in the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study his inspired word of the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.